electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour after a sideways run for stocks as an end-of-year rally still in the cards. We'll debate the road ahead for your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Steve Weiss, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova. Take a look at stocks. We see what the major averages are doing. It's that reversal in the NASDAQ drawing a lot of attention down by more than 100 points, three-quarters of 1%. Dow's good for 200. S&P's good for nearly 12 Rates moving up today, uh, perhaps on the Fed chair being renominated, and that's very interesting for the dynamic moving forward. Joe Terranova, I mean, rates up, high growth tech like the ARC names down. How closely are you paying attention to that? Well, I'm playing very close attention to it. Look, we had an all time high recorded for the S&P, but you have to pay attention and acknowledge and understand that something is going on internally in the market today. First of all, the U.S. dollar continues to push higher. Secondarily, a two to a 10 year spread continues to contract further. And to your point, a lot of places where speculative capital has been very comfortably residing, that capital seems to be coming out, whether it's crypto assets, whether it's a cloud fare, a crowd strike, a lot of the Kathy Wood names that you're talking about. Scott, even a Shopify is down 6%. So Listen, I'm not going to come on air here at 12 o'clock and say I know the exact reasoning why we're seeing this reversal this morning. But it is certainly something that needs to pay uh, be paid close attention to as we move forward here in the coming days. So, Liz Young, I mean, you get a big potential risk off the table with Powell being renominated. It's what you know versus maybe what you don't and what you think uh, policies could be a little bit different. But with that, you do have a move higher in rates on rate hike projections, perhaps being moved forward. Uh, so how do we play it now? Well, I think, first of all, Powell being renominated is a positive in the in the column of a year end rally and obviously taking some of that uncertainty off the table. Not that Brainerd would have been a bad decision and it probably would have been a more dovish decision, but at least we're not going to upset the apple cart before the end of the year. The rate move is higher, but it's not materially higher. And I would remind everybody that we've tried to get above that 174 level on the 10 year twice already this year. It didn't happen. I would not be surprised to see us test it again before the end of the year, but I don't think we're going to move that much higher. I think actually Steve mentioned this in a tweet, and it's been something that I've been watching. The supply and demand issue in the Treasury market is going to keep us kind of in a range in the 10-year for a while. I think we see some yield curve volatility through the end of the year, especially on that December dot plot and the CPI readings that we'll get in December. But after that, when we get into 2022, I do think the curve steepens. I think the Fed wants the curve to steepen, and they're going to do things like accelerate the taper in order for that to happen. Weiss, are we intact for this year-end rally that we've been talking about? I mean, it seemed like everything was fine, and then you had a little bit of a sideways move, and then Tom Lee and his guys come out and say, well, you could get a pullback. Maybe we topped out in the near term. Of course, any pullback's going to be bought, they said. 
but here we have a nice gain on what we think is, at least in some part, Powell being renominated. Yeah, I think that's right. Are we going to be intact for the year in rally? For the most part, but it's going to be data dependent. And for me, as I mentioned last week, it comes down to the inflation numbers that we get in December 10th and December 14th. But what we're seeing now, and Liz referenced the tweet I sent out, we're seeing a lot of supply in up to seven years in terms of treasuries coming on this week in a very compressed period. We'll see all that come on by Wednesday. So this is three days. So what you're seeing is technical selling, number one. Number two, I guess there was more, more optimism from the people that supported Brainerd in the market than I had realized because she was thought to be more dovish. I'm not sure it's true or not. And the fact that Powell was renominated, immediately you saw an uptick in Treasury yields in the 10-year. So that hurt it. And then we also had last week, what took yields down was speculation that with the resurgence of COVID in Europe, in Asia, and here as well, that the Fed would push back the rate hike. And what we saw was the, the percentage of people that were looking for rate hike increase in September versus June. So put all that together, what you have is the pressure in the highly valued stocks, not even PE, but all EBITDA. So Yes, it's intact, but it's intact for a select group of stocks, not in everything all in rally at this point. So it'll be more industrials, more commodities uh, and real true GARP names. I mean, Farmer Jim, if I guess if rates are going to start moving higher now that the PAL question is is out of the way, it does eliminate the possibility of the so-called everything rally, because maybe the high growth, high valuation techs just can't go higher in, in that sort of environment. I, I think that's an absolutely fair point, and I agree with it, Scott. Um, as I think you know, my weighting is far more to the uh, cyclical slash reopening trades, and that's where I actually think there is a lot of value to be had and where I think the rally can pick up. First off, you should note that over the last three weeks, that part of the market has sputtered, and it's sputtered as COVID cases have started to pick up here and abroad. I think the impact of whatever wave we're going to number this of COVID is going to be shallow and short. Uh, and the reason is because we have pills, we have treatments. So when you factor that in, what I see is we've got infrastructure spending coming. We've got rates going higher, but only only modestly so, and that helps financials. We've It seems like we've got tax increases very, very muted. So that's not a concern. We've got profits high and growing. The bottom line from all of this is that I see the market in general going higher. That includes the GARP stocks that Steve was talking about. But I strongly feel that the reopening, the cyclical stocks are where we are supposed to be right now. I think it will be found that this wave of COVID is going to be less in hospitalizations and less in deaths, which I hate talking about, but simply because the treatments are there. The world has adapted to COVID. I think if you want one risk, I'll tell you what the risk is. It's that in January, the buyers are all bought out. I mean, nobody wants to sell right now. I don't want to sell. Um, there is buying going on. But I think in January, the buying may just wear itself out. And that'll leave us susceptible to, to a downturn. But I don't see anything like a, a meaningful correction occurring in the next two months. Yeah, well, because there is the prevailing thought that even if you do get a sell-off of any kind, it's, it's going to be bought that where exactly. else are you going to put your money? And that, that's, that's going to lead the day, according to the most bullish people, regardless. Let's get more now on the big news of the day. President Biden renominating Fed Chair Jay Powell for a second term. Our Steve Leisman joins us now with more. Steve, in the last hour or so, uh, you've seen more senators come out saying that they're going to vote 
uh, for his reconfirmation. If there was a Brainerd trade, a so-called Brainerd trade in the market, it seems to be unwinding. Yields up, VIX down. You've got the markets now pricing in, what, 50 percent of a May hike. Bank stocks are green. What do you make of the whole thing? Yeah, there was a little more Brainerd trade in the market than I thought there would have been, or certainly maybe this is the way the market had wanted to go, but was kind of stalled by the idea that it could have been Brainerd. Uh, you have the dollar higher. Gold was selling off. Uh, you've got uh, a bond yields a little bit higher. And take a look, Scott, just uh, at the Fed probabilities. This is really interesting because, as I think I've reported on this show not too long ago, that May-June split right there, now that you're up around 49 50% on May, that's a bet on a potentially speedier taper. If the Fed gets this taper done sooner, it could potentially hike in May. So when you see that number around 50 percent, it's a market kind of uh, having a good debate over whether or not the Fed speeds up the taper sometime in December or January. And then you go across, and just so everybody is clear, that right-hand most bar, that's the probability of a second hike in December at 58 percent. So the market looking now for a, a more aggressive Fed than it was with the possibility that perhaps uh, it could have been a Brainerd chair. Uh, the other thing, obviously, is the idea of central bank independence. The president did not follow what uh, uh, former President Trump did, which is to appoint somebody from his own party because it's somebody from his own party. So that, that's been broken. I think a lot of people were breathing a sigh of relief for that. Well, the, well a couple other angles, too. And, and I, I saw somebody tweet this, and forgive me, my apologies. I can't remember exactly who it was. But the idea that by not picking Brainerd um, or, or by picking her, it would have set a, an interesting precedent of not picking Jay Powell right. to be the, the Fed chair again, simply because a bunch of political activists, if you will, uh, on one side ver versus the other decided they just didn't want Powell. Yeah. And, and, and if you were to think if you think about it, Scott, well, all of a sudden what you would have is this is a one two of Trump and then Biden both picking somebody who was from their own party uh, and the idea that that certain parts, the fringe parts of parties could dictate who is going to be the Fed chair. I wouldn't underestimate the idea that Brainerd's been put as, as, as Fed vice chair. And all the time I've been covering the, the Fed, Scott, I've never seen a vice chair really disagree with the chair on on policy, or at least on monetary policy. So I think what that means is that Brainerd and Powell are going to have to agree on which way policy goes. I never thought Brainerd was as much of a dove as the market might have thought she was, but I still think uh, it might mean a touch slower. But we'll see, because we've had two folks, two Fed officials, governors last week, talk about the idea of discussing a faster taper in December. So we're going to have to watch that. Hey, Steve, um, literally, as you're, you're speaking, we have a statement from Elizabeth Warren out now, who you may recall, and I know you do, and our viewers uh, hopefully do as well. Uh, she had called the Fed chair a, a dangerous man in the last, you know, I don't know, six to eight weeks. Uh, she says, quote, it's no secret I oppose Chair Jerome Powell's renomination. I'll vote against him. I will support the president's nomination of Lyle Brainerd as vice chair. I'm not going to go into um, the entire statement, but she talks about his failures. Jay Powell's on regulation, climate and ethics make the still vacant position of vice chair critically important. So that's coming from uh, Elizabeth Warren. Steve, no big shock. Otherwise, though, the narrative seems to be that this is pretty much a slam dunk for Powell to get the votes that he needs. I think that's right, Scott. And, and, and from a market standpoint, I think you can bank on Powell being approved. I, I do think you have to be aware, though, that a lot of change is coming to the Fed. Maybe that's a discussion for another day. Remember, there are two interim Fed bank presidents. 
uh, and then uh, add three to the idea that uh, President Biden has three more slots on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors to pick. So that's five new faces on the board next year. And now, you know, for his uh, uh, reward for being renominated, Powell now gets the idea of, of, of he has to navigate out of this uh, extreme policy that we've had. And so he's going to really be in the hot seat the next year or so, Scott. And we're going to have to watch what he says and what he does, because they're going to have to dial back, assuming the economy maintains the trajectory it's on. They're going to have to dial back some of the stimulus. And that's not going to be easy. And probably where he wants to be, though, frankly, Steve, right? If you start it, you'd like to probably be the one mm-hmm. to to finish it. And you, you have to believe that he wants to have that role as well. That's just my conjecture. I have no idea. Maybe you have better reporting on that than just no, I, my, my I, speculation. I, I, I think that's true. I think he wanted the job. I think it's, it's a way that you get sort of affirmed in what you did as to whether or not you're reappointed, politics uh, notwithstanding. Um, I, I think that Powell firmly believes he did the right thing with his very, very extreme measures in the pandemic. Remember, he went to zero uh, really in the blink of an eye. He put $4.4 trillion on, you know, the balance sheet out there. That was more, by the way, QE than Bernanke and Yellen did combined. And, of course, he also pretty dramatically expanded the uh, extent to which the Fed gets involved in markets. Corporate and muni, muni bonds are now on the purchase list, or at least were during the pandemic. Um, and he also, I think, engineered two other things that are worth talking about. On the one hand, he engineered this idea of going to the taper without a tantrum. He also brought in this idea of average inflation targeting, which kind of leveled the playing field between inflation and uh, and unemployment. Scott, it would have been full of irony for Powell, who I judge to be one of the most progressive and aggressive uh, Fed chairs ever, from not to be appointed because Biden wanted somebody more progressive. It's really hard to imagine somebody who's been more progressive than Powell's been. It is. And stay with me, Steve. I want to get the committee uh, into the conversation as well. It is interesting, Liz Young, the, the market reaction, because if the market is overly concerned about rate hike projections being pulled forward, it, it certainly isn't showing it albeit a pullback in the Nasdaq simply because rates have moved higher in the last hour or so. And by the way, Powell's renomination was basically base case for Tom Lee, suggesting that we can go past 4,800 uh, even by the end of, of the year. So the market doesn't seem too concerned with the fact that we've now decided that there's a 50 percent chance of rate hikes starting in May. Yeah, I think to Steve's point, we have to let Powell see this through, right? He started these policies, let him finish it. And one of the things that we know about him is that he likes to signal the market very, very clearly. So if you just play this out on a timeline basis, what I think is going to happen, we'll start to hear about an accelerated taper maybe before the end of the year. Let's say that starts in January or February. They accelerate the pace of the tapering. Let's say they finish tapering somewhere around the end of April. Then we start hearing about the very specific things that he's going to look at in order to decide on rate hikes. And we will be very well signaled, just like we were very well signaled for tapering, if and when that finally starts to happen. I don't think it starts to happen until fall. And I think that's part of what the market is saying here is that, you know what, we're not going to be surprised by some mistake rate hike that comes and catches us off guard. And I think that's a positive. Steve, I mean, I guess, look, it also has to ease Powell's decision, at least somewhat, on on when to raise rates if he thinks that the market is going to be able to handle it. You know what I'm saying? He, he, not that the market activity is necessarily going to guide his hand, but he doesn't want the market to fall out of bed either. 
Um, I'm assuming that's me, Steve, you're talking yes, to, I'm and sorry, not yeah, the Steve other Leisman. more famous Steve, Steve, <laughs> Steve Weiss. Lee- yeah, yeah. Yes, my bad, no Steve Leesman. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, uh, I, I think that's right. I, I think he's played it very well, though, Scott. Uh, he has learned from Bernanke, learned from Yellen, this idea of being incredibly transparent, laying out what you're going to do, creating benchmarks for the market to price in. Um, and, and the idea that we haven't yet freaked out, I say yet because who knows uh, if, if, if the guys on this committee are going to come in one morning and say, oh, my God, the Fed is going to raise in six months. But if you look at the two-year over the course of this uh, uh, regime of it being at zero and compare it to zero under Bernanke and Yellen, what you find is that the two-year was much better behaved. The market was not looking over its shoulder the entire time and saying, Powell's going to hike on us at a time we don't expect. It's only now reached that level of pricing in that first or that second rate hike that's out there. That 50 basis points was there during the entire time, or most of the time anyway, that Bernanke was at zero. So Powell's figured out a way to talk to the market in a way that it believes him and in a way that it gives him the flexibility to react. And the idea, I think you make a really important point, Scott, that the market has sort of uh, priced in these rate hikes next year and remained at a relatively high level, I mean that by way of stocks, is a pretty good accomplishment by the Fed chair, and that's a good reason for his uh, reappointment. I mean, Steve Weiss, you can argue with the policy being around too long, but it's awfully hard to argue with the messaging from Powell because it was the most telegraphed taper ever. And by the way, there's commentary right now from Marco Kalanovic over at J.P. Morgan, who says Powell's reappointment reduces uncertainty and hence should be a positive for risk assets. Tapering is less worrisome for stocks than in 2013, as concerns about excessive hawkishness are unwarranted and the growth cycle appears more durable. Your thoughts? I agree with everything you said, which is that, yes, Powell's been absolutely transparent. He's been a master at communicating the message, and he really hasn't wobbled on it. I mean, you can argue whether he's stuck with transitory way too long and is still sticking to it, although we're seeing some perhaps blemishes on that. But the market has been able to trust what he says for, and not have any fear he's going to contradict himself at the next, next meeting. So the consistency of that transparency is equally as important as the messaging. Yeah. Uh, Steve Leesman, thanks so much. We will uh, talk to you, I'm sure, uh, in the cool. days ahead. I look forward to doing that as well. Pleasure, Scott. All right. That's Steve Leesman joining us there. Let's bring in senior, uh, CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. Mike, you've been looking at the fact that, the, as we talk about the prospects of a, a year-end rally, I mean, the sideways trade that we've had in, in the S&P, and lo and behold, more money moving back towards the mega cap techs, which for a lot of people smacks defensive. But nonetheless, that in and of itself has also helped the overall market avoid a bigger correction. Because if you're going to have an underlying pullback, which you've had, now you're having the strength in the biggest of stocks hold up the market at large. It's happened three or four times this year, Scott. So coming into this week, that was the story, a very narrow uh, rally phase that had allowed the S&P to stay dead flat for two weeks, while really the majority of stocks, the equal weighted uh, versions of the indexes, were all giving back uh, a lot of their gains for the year. So it has been very uh, kind of convenient and elegant to have this rotation. Today, you're really seeing the recoil uh, of that. So essentially, you had a handful 
of the mega cap growth stocks that were essentially doing most of the work to keep the S&P harmless here in that period. And now it's, it's a little bit of an unwind. So I think that the, the upbeat case coming in was, well, this just sets up another one of those rotations back into small caps and cyclicals and financials and all the yield beneficiaries as yields go higher. Uh, maybe that's what we're seeing right now. Very ugly, though, uh, looking reversals in things like NVIDIA, which has been the risk appetite kind of pace setter for weeks right now in this market. And also just the concentrated hedge fund owned names uh, in fintech in some of these areas that really had done well. And you mentioned some of the art complex. There's really been a loss of patience in that part of the market. I don't really see it principally as about yields. It has been mostly about just kind of bleeding away this valuation premium in lower no profit business models as we get toward year end. Also, another element of what's been going on is pretty heavy tax loss selling because a lot of stuff's up a lot. You want to harvest the tax losses where you can. And because it's been an uneven market, there's a lot of opportunity to do that, to find positions where you're already down. And so therefore, it's kind of pile on selling in those names. What's your feeling on how much risk was in the market if Powell wasn't renominated? Um, I think there would have been probably a little bit of a reflex uh, move to the downside. I feel like the reaction to Powell was done by the time the market opened almost today. Uh, so I don't think it would have been uh, really a serious swing factor in the way the market was going. As Steve mentions, we're not talking about really discernible policy differences, maybe a slight shading one way or the other, arguably a second term. Uh, Chair Powell is basically doesn't have to kind of lean in one direction to kind of keep uh, the administration's favor. Maybe it can be more responsive to inflation. But I do think there's always a sense that the market has where we need to learn a new chair's uh, kind of, you know, reaction function, communication style, exactly how they're going to, to manage the messaging. And that's no longer a necessity right now when you have a known quantity. There. Joe, I mean, you do, you know, even as we sit here and we have this conversation about technology and where it goes in an environment of, of higher rates, MKM has a note, the technician there, J.C. O'Hara, saying new money starting to flow into tech. It's a matter of where within tech it's going to continue to flow. I, I mean, I still remember... You know, gosh, it feels like it was at least a year ago and probably longer than that when Ricky Sandler was on our show. And you talk about these so-called, I think he termed it fashion show stocks. You can't paint tech, all tech with a broad brush. Um, you could have money continue to come out of the so-called fashion show stocks and money continue to go in to the big mega cap that so-called tried and true, truer names. I 100 percent agree with that. You and I spoke last week on the show about the expected bifurcation that I believe is going to unfold for technology over the coming quarters. You have Apple and Microsoft, in which in the coming quarters, I think we're easily going to be discussing a potential $3 trillion valuation. And then you, on the other side of that, you have high beta, hyper growth technology stocks that are clearly continuing the significant downtrend that they've been in for the entirety of the year. I also think there's other components of technology where you could, uh, as an investor, find a qualitative nature. I know Mike mentioned before NVIDIA. Uh, I'm relatively happy owning NVIDIA with its performance here today. It's not down that much. AMD, you can signal the same thing. There are other areas of technology like Adobe. So I think this is the moment. I think this is the bifurcation moment. I think technology investors are going to pay a premium for companies that are able to exhibit a strong capital allocation strategy. They're able to generate that revenue in the here and now, and they're able to exhibit the sustained 
double-digit revenue growth, not on a one-quarter basis, but on a multi-quarter basis. Mike, lastly to you, you know, the harder question to understand and and figure out and, you know, in, in some cases guess is how much we've pulled forward into this year from next. And you, you look at the targets and you have more coming out really by the day. Goldman S&P 500 year end 2022 is 5,100. Now, that's just a 10 percent total return. Uh, yeah. Nothing to knock your socks off. Uh, B of A's 2022 says their market bearish rate shock yeah. in 22 to follow inflation shock of 21 and the growth shock of, of 20. Do you have a sense as you look at the market how much we might have pulled forward? There's not a way to get a clear sense of that, Scott. By the way, that logic is not always all that helpful. Uh, you know, usually very strong markets are followed by further gains as opposed to kind of some payback uh, phase. Now, early in a new year, I do think a lot of times you have some deferred selling and you have sometimes the buildup of optimistic sentiment toward year end doesn't really come to bite the market until you get into January. Maybe you have a chop or a flatten out period. Uh, but historically, when you look at great years like we're having 25 percent higher, you look at what happens the next year. It's basically the same odds as you have with every year, which is up two thirds of the time. Average returns, you know, around eight to 10 percent. By the way, the forecasts by the street are going to come in around that eight to 10 percent number every single year. That's where they're going to congregate. And there's almost no chance that happens. You almost never get an individual calendar year when, in fact, that's the return. It's just the average of all the years over the long term. There's more chance of the market being down than up eight to 10 percent. Yeah, I mean, next year is going to be interesting and and maybe uh, the better words, tricky, right? Midterm elections, rate hikes you're going to have to deal with, the future of COVID, and who knows what else that we haven't even gamed for yet. Uh, Mike, I appreciate it as always. That's Mike Santoli. Yep. All right, take a look at this mystery chart. It's an EV play. It's up big this quarter. There's a new call out today, though, saying it's time to take money off the table. We're going to reveal the name. We're going to talk about somebody who did take some money off the table. We'll talk about it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Reduced subway service in the nation's capital will last through at least the end of the year. About 60 percent of rail cars are still sidelined after a derailment in mid-October. No timeline yet for returning those cars to service. A New York probe has found, quote, overwhelming evidence that former Governor Andrew Cuomo engaged in sexual harassment. The report also found that Cuomo aides substantially revised the state report to exclude deaths of nursing home residents at hospitals. This as an attempt to boost Cuomo's reputation. The Dutch prime minister slamming rioters for a third night of violence over COVID restrictions. The prime minister calling them, quote, idiots. He says that they're attacking people working to keep the country safe under the pretense of being dissatisfied. And on the news, more organized gangs loot stores across America. The latest string of crimes in California. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And Jeff Bezos making two big donations. He is giving $100 million to former President Obama's foundation in honor of former congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis. Family, Bezos and his family have also given $166 million to New York University's Medical Center. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rahel Solomon. Blink charging, getting crushed today. Shares are still up nearly 40% in the last month. Now, Cowan says the valuation stretched. The firm downgrades that stock to market perform. We've made it our call of the day. And we bring in John Nigerian because he's making moves in Blink. Dr. J, welcome. Thank you, Scott. You cut your losses, huh? Well, they were gains. Uh, like you said, it's up still up over 40%. And I just kept rolling, rolling, rolling to the upside. Um, but today versus Friday, yeah, it was a loss. Um, and uh, what I did, Scott, was I, I'm not saying that they're ringing a bell as far as uh, saying, oh, it's over for charging. I don't think it is going to be over, not with 500,000 charging stations coming our way uh, over the next uh, five years. Uh, but I do think that it was pretty clear that we should be taking profits today. People listening to that. Cowan report obviously sold Blink. Um, it put a cap on the upside of ChargePoint and Volterra and EVgo. So I had three of those four stocks uh, through options, and I closed all of them out today. The mm. one, like you say, uh, Blink was closed at a loss from Friday's trade till today. It was a loss, but it was a strong month for performance in the in that sector. What do you do? And I'm looking at it as we speak. I'm, I'm pulling it up here. Uh, a Rivian is down, wow, 12 and a half, almost 13 percent today. You, you own Rivian. So how do you factor that into what you just said with the others? Well, um, I own Rivian uh, calls now. As you recall, last week um, when I was on with you, I said I traded out of the stock at 160, 105 to 160. You don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. Uh, and then I put on a spread, the 160, 190 spread, Scott. I have since now rolled that down to the 120, 150 spread um, because I still like the play, um, but I wanted to take some of that off. And in fact, one of the bits of unusual activity today was uh, NEO. Um, I'm not doing this for unusual right now, but I'm citing it because NIO, the this week, November uh, 42 calls uh, right with the stock at about 42. They bought 16,000 of those. So as much as people were still taking profits, I guess, in Rivian, um, they weren't uh, doing that in Neo. Instead, they're positioning for upside in NIO. All right. So I also understand Farmer Jim, and I want to bring Jim in because I want to have a little bit of a debate on this. Jim, you bought Rivian puts uh, in your personal account brand new. So yeah. 
Give me the reasoning behind that. And then if we need to have a little debate on whether these stocks have all gotten so far ahead of themselves, we can do that. Yeah. So, Scott, I bought 120 strike puts on Friday in Rivian. They expire this coming Friday. Uh, so right now it's it's working out fine. I do want to stress this is just for me personally. I don't buy options for clients because sometimes these things can go to zero. But I said to you on the show a week and a half ago that this is a case of the emperor is not wearing any clothes. Uh, for this stock to have a market cap greater than GM is nonsensical. Now, I'm not just coming at John. You know, I, I, I don't think he'll be able to find me even if he does want to try to take me out. But I think John will also agree that this is kind of a ridiculous valuation and where we may differ. In fact, I know we differ is on the timing of this. This is exactly why I only do this in my personal account is because I have to be right in the next three days. Right now, I am right. I'll, and I'll have to close it out in the next three days. But really, this is a stock that should be well below 100 on a market valuation basis. Um, and maybe that happens this week or maybe it happens next year. I don't know. But I told you this is the emperor wearing no clothes. If you look at the entire market cap of all the EV stocks and the traditional OEM uh, manufacturers, it's as if the world thinks there's going to be 10 times as many cars on the road next year in total than there are today. That's just preposterous. All right. The emperor is wearing no clothes. This stock does not deserve to be a hundred dollar stock. Should be half of where it is right now. So I've made my stand. OK. And Doc knows I love him. He knows I love him. All right. I we, never, don't, we, all right. we don't need all that. Doc, Doc trade, but he I hear you. Me. I hear you. Nice <laughs> of these aside. We appreciate it. You know, you're a nice guy. Dr. Yeah, Jay. he is. Dr. He, uh, Jim is an analytical guy, and as I should always do, thank you for your service, Jim, um, because I truly do appreciate what you've done in service of this country. Um, as far as this trade, he could be absolutely right, Scott, um, but I, I, the unfair comparison, I think, is putting it against Ford or GM or any legacy car manufacturer, because just like Tesla, you're talking about a brand new, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, this changed everything, but it changed several really big things. Number one, when Tesla did it, they did it without a dealer network. Number two, they didn't have the pension issues that the other uh, car manufacturers around the world have. Uh, and um, they came up with a new category, more or less. When Tesla came up with the EV, they were the first really big mover in that space. Now, Rivian is not the first. They've got a good-looking truck um, that looks a lot like the Lightning. Uh, I think the Lightnings will be delivered before the Rivian trucks. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, I think that uh, when you look at the lack of that dealer network uh, that takes the bulk of the profit out of that vehicle, Scott, as well as the pension issue that puts more expense on top of the vehicles that GM, Ford, Volkswagen, for that matter, make, I think you get the idea that um, this is – uh, not a direct or a fair comparison to say, well, versus GM's valuation or versus Ford's valuation. Because if they didn't have those things, the dealer network and the pensions, they'd be a lot higher, too, right, right, right. in valuation. So um, I appreciate that. And I want to get one more quick comment. It's from you, Joe, uh, because what I find interesting as we're having this conversation is you're looking at Ford, thinking about buying it today. What puts you over the edge and, and says, OK, I, I'm going to make that move? Uh, the stock's already moved a lot. It's barely off of its 52-week high, and it's up like better than 50% in just a few months. So why are you first looking at it now, yeah, so number one? And number two, what's going to get you to buy it today relative to what I just said about the run that it's already had? 
Well, I, I've, I've had moments where I've been in either GM or Ford. I'll acknowledge that I probably have not held on to either of them in the way that you should be in this environment. I, I like the resiliency of Ford over the last several weeks as we are seeing a lot of money that is going into this EV theme. Um, I suspect, Scott, that one of the things that's unfolding here is that capital that was in Tesla and moved out of Tesla went into the EV names, and it created a great trade for the EV names. But I think now the overall exposure that the viewer wants to have towards the theme of EVs is in the more traditional sense. I disagree with John. I think that takes you right towards GM, Ford, Tesla, and even some of the foreign automakers. And for me, the resiliency of Ford in the last couple of weeks is one of the reasons why uh, I'm interested in purchasing it. And we'll probably will do so over the coming days. Okay. I appreciate it. Hey, Doc, before I let you run, you uh, want to give our viewers a special, unusual activity today? I'd love to do that, Scott. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Facebook, um, FB. This is one that I got out of the stock completely, and I'm only in the options. But today, Scott, they started off buying the November uh, November 26, 355 calls. They bought like eight or 10,000 of them. Now it's up over 43,000. That's this week expiration, Black Friday expiration, 355 calls. Second one was Taiwan Semiconductor, TSM. They bought 8,500, again, of this week, November 26th, 130 calls with the stock about 126 and a half. So both of those, um, much bigger than normal volume. Facebook is like off the charts. It's trading four to one calls to puts right now. Um, and I'm happy to be back in the calls, but I do not have stock in Facebook anymore. All right. I appreciate you popping on with us today, Doc. We'll see you back on the desk you, soon. Sir. All right. Still ahead on the half, the big ETFs to put on your radar today. We're back in just two minutes. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Leslie Picker with your ETF Edge. One undeniably hot trend that's taken the ETF world by storm is ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And that trend continues to garner demand. Inflows into sustainable ETFs are up roughly 50% from where they were this time a year ago as more and more companies attempt to weave ESG into the fabric of their DNA. Just last week, Charles Schwab joined forces with Aerial Investments to launch Schwab's first ever ESG ETF and first ever active fund, the Schwab Aerial ESG ETF, ticker symbol SAEF. 
Joining me now to discuss is David Botset, Head of Equity Product and Strategy at Schwab Asset Management, along with Tom Leiden, CEO of ETF Trends. David, let's start with you. Clearly, there's been a lot of inflows here into these ESG offerings out there. How does this one stand out? You know, Leslie, first off, thanks for having me on today. I think this product really stands out in one distinct way, in that many of the ESG offers in the market today are focused on large cap companies, and many of them have a tilt towards growth-oriented companies. And what we've designed here with Ariel and the investment philosophy provides investors small and mid-cap exposure with a little bit more of a value tilt to help really put together a well-rounded ESG portfolio. Yeah, and and those are some of the more under-the-radar picks when it comes to ESG these days. Tom, do you think that the market for ESG is getting oversaturated? There's a thought out there that this is kind of one of those bull market phenomenons, and you know, once we see a reversal, uh, that ESG may go to the wayside. Do you agree with that? I think we're just getting started, Leslie. We're actually behind our friends over in Europe that have been on this for a while. And the great thing is every company comes at it a different way. When you think about Ariel, they're really unique. Uh, They are the oldest African-American-owned asset manager in the U.S. And since uh, 1998, have worked directly with Schwab to do some specific survey work uh, regarding black investors and This was first completed over 20 years ago. They explore the similarities between black and white Americans when it comes to savings, investing, and other financial priorities. I think with this active management, you're going to see not only, as David said, big companies, but small and mid-sized companies that are specific to this cause. And uh, it's quite uh, appealing from a different standpoint as far as ESGs out there. One other fact that's really important is Schwab does not have sub-advisors that often. They pick them very, very carefully. So the fact that they've done this with Ariel, I think, is quite notable. Interesting. And that ETF up about half a percentage point today. Tom, David, thank you very much for joining us. You can catch us at 1 p.m. Eastern talking the top ETF trends in November and what's at stake for Bitcoin's ETFs with David Abner, Global Head of Business Development at Gemini. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime is back after this. All right, let's talk some Salesforce. Stock is down about 1% today. The price target, though, was raised to 360 from 330 at Atlantic Equities. Also, it's now a top five holding among, among, among hedge funds for the first time ever. It's number four on Goldman's list. Here's what I want to do. Let's get a two box, please. Farmer Jim and Steve Weiss back together again. Old friends. Jim, you own Salesforce. Steve Weiss, you wouldn't buy Salesforce. Jim, you go first. Why is it a buy today? Why would Steve uh, change his habits and start buying good stocks? Um, This is a stock that is a little (laughs) bit different than what I normally buy because of the valuation. I'll start there. But I bought this earlier this year. The stock had swooned. And this was when Mark Benioff, the CEO, came in and acquired Slack or announced the acquisition. I looked at that move and I said, "Okay, I like this. I like this a lot. He's already got a business in customer relationship management that is almost cultish in how his customers uh, feel about it. Now he's pivoting to a new growth segment. It's the right place to be. I expect more moves like that from Mark Benioff. 
this stock is up 30% since I bought it earlier this year, so I have no complaints. It may come down at some point, particularly as rates go up. I will use that as an excuse to add to the stock. So I, this is going to be a long-term hold for me. Okay. Steve Weiss, why no touch? Too rich? Well, well, first of all, you know, I can't agree with Jim because no sense both of us being wrong. Look, yes, it is too rich, number one. Number two, their models changed a little bit. They had so much organic growth, but as, as they got bigger and as their core business started to slow, they have to make bigger and bigger acquisitions. And these large roll-ups, and that's what it's turning into with Slack, which was an expensive acquisition, and others, as Jim, that come down the road, they just don't work that well because then you have cultures clashing and we've seen it time and time again, Red Hat and IBM being another one. So it's not the savior and you should never violate your discipline. This valuation is egregious. Rates are going higher. And as Jim said earlier in the show, it's not going to work for these high valued stocks. So I'll talk him out of it uh, out of it later. Jim, I mean, I'm looking at it's like 119 times. How can you possibly compare this to IBM? I mean, one is a company that is growing both organically and by acquisitions. I don't think this is a roll up at all. The other one is shrinking organically and making acquisitions that don't make any sense. I mean, this is night and day. I, I, I know you and I like to do our odd couple routine, but I don't I don't know where you're going at with this one. I, I, I compared it to IBM because, number one, I wanted you to have a frame of reference because you owned IBM, number one. Number two, that because of companies that need, to make that need to make acquisitions when their core growth rate, their organic growth rate is slowing. Of course, they're different companies. And this is much, much better management. I mean, he's one of my favorite managers of all time. However, this isn't going to save him. Sometimes you get too big for your own good, saturate too much of the market. All right. That's the last word there. To be continued. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll do final trades next. All right, final trade time. Liz Young, you go first. Uh, electric and autonomous vehicles. I believe in the theme long term. I think there's fiscal power behind it. I think there's consumer power behind it. You want to do it in a diversified way, not just picking one stock. So looking at components that also go into these vehicles along with the automakers. All right. A lot of activity in that space today and in the past many days. Joe Terranova, you're up next. So, Scott, it's not going to surprise you when you see me again on Wednesday. I will be long Ford Motors. But the question is, what do I sell for the capital mm. to use for Ford the answer to that is going to be Starbucks. I first bought Starbucks wow. on February 2nd. At one, I bought it at 101.32. I've got about a 9% gain, but the stock since July has been moving sideways to lower. It's time to get out onto something better, and that'll be Ford Motors. All right, so Joe was a looker. Now he's a buyer of letter F, Ford. <coughs> Excuse me, out of Starbucks. Farmer Jim? All right, real quick, I know we're running out of time. Wind Resorts, two reasons. One, the reopening is occurring, and two, China doesn't matter to this stock. It's already out of it. All right, quick, Steve Weiss. Dick Sporting, because reports in the morning, tough comps, but I think they'll exceed and beat the numbers that they forecast. All right, the exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.